The Lord be with you. (laughs) Let us pray. O Lord, teach thy people to love thy house best of all dwellings, thy scriptures best of all books, thy sacraments best of all gifts, the communion of saints best of all company, and that we may as one family and in one place give thanks and adore thy glory. Help us to keep always thy day, the first of days, holy unto thee our maker, our resurrection, and our life. God blessed forever. Amen. Amen. Well, we are uh, studying John's gospel, so I noticed that a number of you brought your Bibles with you today, and that is absolutely marvelous. God bless you for that. I'm taking roll, and I know who's done it and who hasn't. So, if you will turn to John chapter 2, and as you're doing so, I'm going to take a moment of personal privilege um, if I don't tell you, Bill Christian is surely going to tell you. <laughs> so, um, uh, well, as many of you know, I went to um, Germany this past summer in addition to some other places. Some of you actually went with me. We toured all through Germany, went to Berlin. But I think, for me at least, the highlight of Germany was going to Wittenberg, uh, which is where Martin Luther lived and where he raised his family and where he nailed those 95 theses to the door of the castle church there at Wittenberg, sparking the Protestant Reformation. I think most of you probably know that. Um, The other side of that story is kind of interesting. I have never paid any attention really to my family genealogy. I've just, you all know I have a great interest in history. I've always had an interest in history, um, but mostly American history and English history. I know a little bit about my mother's side of the family. I know that, um, you know, my mother was born in England. I know where her family comes from and so forth. Um, But I really knew nothing about the Miller side of the family. Um, First of all, they were very prolific. I mean, uh, my grandfather came from a family of 13 children. So, you know, and I'll be honest with you, I wasn't all that close to that side of the family. When we were little, we would get dragged off to these family uh, reunions. They were enormous with all of these people that I didn't know, and they were very raucous. And so, I, you know, it was a little frightening to a little boy, to be perfectly honest with you. So I never really paid much mind to that sort of thing. But I have an uncle, my late father's brother, um, who has retired. He was successful in Pittsburgh, retired to Pauley's Island, because you know that's what all we do. That's, we Pennsylvanians move down here. And so he moved to Pauley's Island because he had married a girl some years ago um, from South Carolina. And uh, he's really gotten into family genealogies. I mean, he's, he's really into this, and he's got a cousin, a first cousin, who's also very interested in this. And so they've been doing all of this research, and they had traced the family back to a soldier who had served in the Revolutionary War. And that's really what they were interested in, this, this soldier who had served in the Revolutionary War. Now, don't get your hopes up. Unfortunately, he did not serve for the Patriot cause, um, I'm sorry to say. Um, he served on the other side, and I've, I've always said, jokingly, somebody said, well, where's your family come from? I said, oh, they were all, you know, thieves and pirates, because I just assumed that they really were. Um, and so they said, just thieves and pirates, and um, it turns out that this fellow was a little bit of a, of a pirate. He was a Hessian. Um, so he was a hired mercenary, hired by the British to serve um, against the colonists. And so I thought, oh, well, there, there we go, just my luck. Um, so the family really wanted to know more about this fellow, and they didn't pay much mind to his last name. But they knew that being a Hessian, he came from Germany. They knew enough about his regiment and so forth to know what part of Germany 
or Prussia that he came from, and so they wrote um, to somebody in Germany. I think they assumed that they were going to get an answer from some little old lady serving in some local museum. And what they got back was a very excited response from some professor at the University of Erfurt, a man by the name of Wolfgang Alt, who was very excited and was looking for just this thing. And apparently, um, he said, yes, we're very interested in your family. And he traced the lineage the whole way back. And we got this just stacks of paper, portions of which were written in Germany, and my uncle had to have translated. But I, you know, I just couldn't believe this. So it comes back. Indeed, after checking all available information, we can affirm your direct descent from the great reformer, Dr. Martin Luther, oh, via his son, Dr. Johannes Luther, whose great-grandson, Simon Luther, was teacher at the something in Erfurt. I can't even pronounce it in German. His great-grandson is your ancestor, Conrad Luther, who came to New York in 1776 as a Hessian soldier and whose complete given name is Bernhard Marianus Conrad Luther, who had a daughter who married into the Miller family in Carrolltown, Cambria County, Pennsylvania. So, so I thought that was pretty cool, to be honest with you. And what made it all the better is because I had been struggling with some guilt since that trip to Wittenberg. Because we were going through Luther's house, and um, there was a table there where Luther wrote his table talks, these famous devotional and theological um, talks and guides that have become very famous, they've been passed down and they've been read through the centuries. And there it was, they, you know, they had a placard there, and it says, you know, Luther used this table to write his theological works and to write table talks. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is like the Holy Grail. I said to Kristen, I said, now, wait till everybody gets out of the room. I, I want you to take my picture touching that table. <laughs> And she said, you can't do that. It says, don't touch the signs. I said, be quiet. She said, what, what if the alarm goes off? I said, well, we'll just tell them it was a mistake. And, and so I leaned over, and she's got my picture. And now I don't feel so guilty because it's a family piece. So just thought I'd share that little bit of information with you. I thought that was pretty exciting. Um, really very exciting indeed. Uh, I'll share one of the little bit of... Yes? Well, yeah. Are you talking about Luther's love of beer, or what is this? I don't... But yeah, that was, that was, so that was pretty cool. I never paid much mind, so I'm going to have to say that some of them were pirates and thieves, but not everybody. There was, uh, there was one in the family tree is pretty cool. So you, you pass that on to Johnny Stirrer, that Lutheran, and let him know. All right, well, we are in John chapter 2. My ancestor would appreciate the fact that we're studying the Gospel of John. It was one of his favorite books. So let's turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 2. And we're picking up the narrative at chapter 13. Last week, we took a look at Jesus' journey um, to Cana of Galilee, where he performed a great miracle. Uh, he had started off, we said earlier than this in the Gospel of John, down near the Jordan River Valley where John the Baptist had been baptizing. And then he had traveled up to Cana of Galilee where he went to this wedding. We said it was a very familiar scene to all of us. We've all been to weddings. But we talked about how significant a, a wedding was in first century Jewish culture. And it was there that Jesus performed this 
the first of his great miracles, where he turned water into wine. He was initially, it appears, reluctant to do so for the simple reason that he said his time, his hour, had not yet come. And I pointed out that in the Gospel of John, that expression, my time or my hour, is always a reference to that moment when Jesus would be revealed as the Savior of the world. Theologians sometimes refer to this as the, the uh, messianic secret, that Jesus didn't want everybody to know right away uh, that he was the Messiah, probably for any number of reasons. One is because they would focus more on the miracles than they did on the man and the message. And the other thing is this, if they really did acclaim him as the Messiah, they had a very particular idea of what the Messiah had come to do and be. Most Jews in the first century imagined that the Messiah had come to be some sort of political or military leader or Messiah, Savior, who would drive out the Romans and reestablish the glory days of King David and Solomon, reestablish the Davidic dynasty. That's what everybody anticipated. And indeed, when Jesus did begin to perform great miracles, signs and wonders, like the feeding of the 5,000, we're told that the people flocked to him. And they wanted to make him a king. Now, that's a great temptation to want to be the king, but Jesus knew that would be a mistake. He was the king. He was the king of the Jews, and he acknowledged that at the end of his ministry before Pontius Pilate. But he knew that he wasn't the kind of king that they anticipated. He had come to deliver them, but the real thing that afflicted them was not the Romans. Believe it or not, the real problem was the sin in their lives, which kept them separated from God. And so Jesus did not want them to acclaim him as the king. And so every time he'd perform a miracle, like the raising of Jairus' daughter, he would say, now don't tell anybody about it. And we pointed out that that's the one thing that they would go and do, tell everybody about it. I mean, if you'd seen somebody raised from the dead, you'd probably tell everybody about it as well. But Jesus was reluctant to perform this miracle, but his mother insisted. We said that wine was a very important part of a Jewish feast. To run out of wine, which was symbolic of joy, was a great embarrassment to the family. And so Jesus acted in a very, non, in a very discreet way. Uh, he acted to relieve these people of their shame and their guilt. And this, we said, was the first of his signs, signs always pointing to something greater than themselves that Jesus had performed. And then it says, after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. And we pick up the narrative then at verse 13, where Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Incidentally, when it says went up to Jerusalem, that does not necessarily mean they're going north. Every Jew, no matter what direction of the compass you came to Jerusalem from, you always went up to Jerusalem for two reasons. First of all, Jerusalem is situated on a high hill. Some of you have been to Jerusalem, you've seen the Temple Mount, for example. And the other reason was, as far as Jews were concerned, Jerusalem was the center of the world. It was the highest place on earth, symbolically. And so you always went up to Jerusalem. So it says, the passer of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with their, their sheep and their oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? 
Just pause here for just a minute. Whenever you hear that expression in the Gospel of John, the Jews, it is not normally a reference to the Jewish people as a whole. Uh, this is something unique about the Gospel of John. When you hear that expression, the Jews, it's always a reference, at least in the fourth Gospel, to the Jewish religious leaders, to the establishment, to the scribes, the Pharisees, the members of the Sanhedrin. So some people have said, well, the Gospel of John is an anti-Semitic Gospel because it blames the Jews for the death of Jesus. When it talks about the Jews in the fourth Gospel, it's referring to the Jewish religious leaders, not to the people in mass. And so a distinction is often made between the Jews and the people. So the Jews, that is to say the religious leaders, said to him, what sign do you have to show us that you have the authority to do these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? He was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. We see another side of Jesus in this particular story, don't we? A different side of Jesus from the one that we saw last week. What we saw last week was Jesus who was compassionate, merciful, concerned for this family that was going to be filled with shame and embarrassment at the fact that they had not planned accordingly and they had run out of wine, which was symbolic of joy. And this would have been a great disgrace to the bridegroom in particular. We said that in the ancient world, the bride was not the star of the show. It was actually the bridegroom. And this would have been a great embarrassment for the family. It would have been a blight on the marriage as they were starting off the bride and the bridegroom. And so Jesus had acted in a compassionate way. He didn't have to do this. He even acknowledged to his mother, my time has not yet come. This is not part of what I really come to do. And yet Mary said to him, just go and do it. Or at least she said to the servants, just do whatever he tells you to do. And then she probably just gave him the mother's look. And we've all seen that look before. And Jesus just went off and did exactly what she wanted him to do. But here we get a very different picture of Jesus. Uh, it is not Jesus meek and mild. It is Jesus full of wrath and frustration. It's Jesus making a cord or whip of cords with which he is going to drive the money changers out of the temple and he is going to overturn their tables. This is a side of Jesus that we don't normally see. But it is a reminder to us that this is Jesus just as much as Jesus at Cana of Galilee. Jesus is not just meek and mild. Yes, he is the Savior. Yes, he is the Deliverer. But he is also the Lord. He is a God whose property is always to have mercy. But we cannot forget that he is also the God of justice. He is the Lamb, but he is also the Lion of Judah. Now, the occasion for this surprising activity, we said, was the Passover. Now, the Jews had many festivals, many celebrations during the course of the year. But Passover was by far 
their highest feast day. It would be like our Easter. Easter is the highest feast days for Christians in the calendar. We have lots of celebrations. We celebrate Christmas, we celebrate Pentecost, and we have any number of saints' days in between. But Easter is by far, for us, the highest of all the days because it is the day of our Lord's resurrection. Well, for the Jews, the high feast day was Passover. It was by far the most important of all their festivals. They had many of them, but this was the most important. And most Jews, at one point or another in their lifetime, would make an effort to travel to Jerusalem to be there for the Passover. So most Jews would make an attempt to go there. And you all know what the Passover is all about. It is a reminder to the Jews of their deliverance. They had been slaves in Egypt for over 400 years, languishing under the lash of the Egyptian pharaohs. Many of the great monuments, for example, when you go to Egypt today, to Cairo and, and uh, other places, you'll see these monuments, these pyramids and so forth. Many of those were built um, by the Hebrew slaves. So they had been slaves for over 400 years. They felt that they had been forgotten, but God had not forgotten them. And at the end of that time period, God had raised up a servant, Moses, to deliver them. And Moses had gone to Pharaoh and demanded that he set the people free. And, of course, Pharaoh said, forget it. You know, I've got a good thing going here. There's, there's no way I'm going to let you free. And Moses then explains, well, if you won't free them, God will. And you know the story, God brought a series of plagues, terrible plagues upon the Egyptians. But the greatest and the most devastating of all the plagues was the what? The death of the firstborn. The angel of death passed through Egypt and he slayed the firstborn of every household. Except God had made a provision for the Hebrews that if they took the blood of a lamb and they placed it over doorposts, then the angel of death, as he passed through the nation, would pass over their house. And indeed, that's exactly what happened. And that was finally what broke Pharaoh's resistance, and uh, he let the people go. Now, you all know that once he let them go, he had a change of heart, change of mind about that. Uh, but God, nevertheless, delivered them by signs and wonders and the power of his outstretched arm, and he drowned the Egyptians in the Red Sea. So you know that story. Well, that is a story that had been commemorated by the Jews ever since. They were never to forget how God had delivered them, how he had saved them, how he had passed over. And so this was a huge feast for the Jews. And as I said, every Jew, at least one point in their life, was expected to make the journey to Jerusalem to celebrate. And that is exactly what Jesus was doing. He was making his way to Jerusalem for the Passover. Now, this is the first Passover that Jesus celebrated in Jerusalem. And this is significant because it's only because of John's gospel that we know that Jesus' ministry was three years. We all know that Jesus was, he died sometime around the, the age of 33, and he began his ministry at 30, that he ministered for three years on this earth actively. But the only reason we know that his ministry was three years is because of the gospel of John. If you read the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'll come away with the impression that Jesus only ministered for one year. How do we know that it was three years? What does John teach us? Well, John mentions Jesus going to Jerusalem for three Passovers. So that's how we know his ministry was three years. It's because of the three successive Passovers that he celebrated in Jerusalem. The first one being 
in John 2. Then the second was in John 6. And then the final, the third Passover is John 13, where he is ultimately what? Arrested, tried, and crucified. So it's only because of John's gospel and these various Passovers that we know that Jesus' ministry was three years. Well, this was the first of the Passovers. Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem. And he goes, as of course everybody did, up to that most holy of sites. He goes up to the temple. If you go to Washington, D.C., there are just certain sites that you have to visit. Uh, if you go to London, there are just certain sites that you have to visit. And if you went to Jerusalem, there were certain sites that you had to visit. And one of them, the most important, of course, where the Passover would be celebrated, where the lambs would be sacrificed, would be the temple itself. And it was an impressive building. It was one of the wonders of the ancient world. This is what is commonly referred to as the second temple. It had been constructed by King Herod. Now, ironically, um, Herod, you know, was in cahoots with the Romans. And there was actually an imperial eagle over the entrance to the temple, which really put the Jews out. They hated that. But nevertheless, um, there was this impressive building, and it had been built by Herod as a monument, and uh, he intended it to rival what Solomon had built before, which had been destroyed. And it was one of the great monuments of the ancient world. It was made of polished stone. Um, if you go to Jerusalem today, they still quarry this stone in the area, and you can see the outer retaining wall of the temple. You know that it was destroyed in the year 70 AD. The Romans came in under Titus and sacked the city and put people to the sword. But you can still see the outer retaining wall, and you can still see the stones. They're cream-colored. And they were polished to look like granite. And when you went up to Jerusalem, when the sun was rising in the morning, it would reflect off that polished stone. And they said it was so brilliant, you couldn't look directly at it. So it was supposed to reflect the glory and the majesty of God. It was the center, as I said, of everything that was precious to the Jews, the center of the world, this great temple where God dwelt symbolically with his people. And Jesus is going up there to celebrate the highest feast day. I mean, it would be like going to, you know, Westminster Abbey or St. Paul's Cathedral on Easter of all days. You know, one of those great monuments, and you're going there, and you're going there to celebrate the greatest feast day. Well, that's the way it was for Jesus. And yet when he arrives there, he is sorely disappointed. In fact, he is appalled because what does he find? He finds what I call a bizarre bazaar. The place is filled with buying and selling. Now, you may be wondering, what in the world is that all about? Well, it's like so many things in life. It was intended to be good. It was intended to convey a lesson. But it was one of those things that over time got distorted, got abused. The Jews believed that they were called to be different. Jews were called to be separate from every other people. That was their great calling, to come out from among them and be ye separate. That's really different from our calling, if you think about it. What were Jesus' final words to his disciples prior to his ascension? Go ye into all the world. Our job as Christians is to go into the world and be salt and light in the world. That was not the calling of Jews. Their calling was to come out of the world and be separate, be different. You're not like the other people. That's why I had all those rules and regulations and the kosher laws. They were to show themselves and to show the world that they were different from everybody else. And that's why they had buying and selling taking place in the temple. 
because when you went up to the temple for the Passover, a number of things had to happen. First of all, you had to pay for the upkeep of the temple. You had to pay the temple tax. You know, the temple had to be maintained in the same way that we have to maintain our buildings, our historic campus. And I can tell you, that's costly. It's expensive. And so every Jew is expected to tithe. Every Jew is expected to give a donation to the temple, the upkeep of the temple. That was the first thing. Second thing you had to do is you had to bring an animal to be sacrificed for the Passover. Now, you were supposed to bring a lamb or you were supposed to bring a goat. Uh, if you couldn't afford to do that, you could bring some other animal. But here was the thing. The animal had to be pure and without blemish. In other words, you couldn't just say, well, I've got a flock here and I've got to go up to the temple and I've got to bring an animal and, well, this one's lame. Let's get rid of that one because it's not going to last anyway and they're just going to sacrifice it anyway. Let's just take that one. That, you know, that's the way we have a tendency to think. Jews were not permitted to do that because this was an act of worship and you were to offer to the Lord the very best that you had. And so the animal had to be without spot and without blemish. The best that you had to offer was offered to the Lord. But here's the thing. When you went up to pay that temple tax, you could not pay for it in Gentile currency. Now, that may have been the currency that was out there in your particular province of the Roman Empire, but you were not permitted to use that currency to pay the temple tax. Why? Because it was dirty lucre. It was filthy money. Whose face was on the coin? You know this from one of Jesus' encounters. It was Caesar's. That's, that's right. Caesar's, the emperor's. And the emperor was regarded by the Romans as a demigod. There was a cult of emperor worship. So the last thing you want to do is pay the temple tax at God's holy temple with the face of this pagan emperor who they worshipped as a god. So when you got there... What did you have to do? You had to do the same thing if you arrive in Heathrow or you arrive in any other airport overseas, you've got to exchange the currency. But guess what? They were charging an exchange rate. You know, that's the way it works. And so when you went up to pay your temple tax at the temple and you had to exchange your currency, there was an exchange rate. So you're not getting back what you're putting in. That was the first problem. And remember that most people in the first century were poor. You understand that in that time period, there was no such thing as a middle class. You know, middle class is actually a relatively new phenomenon. Throughout most of history, there has never been a middle class. There are those who had power and influence and money, and there were people who were poor. And there was a great chasm that was fixed between the two. But there was no middle class. That is a relatively new phenomenon. So these people were poor. They're coming up here, and clearly they're being taken advantage of. And the situation was even worse with the animals. Because you would bring the best animal that you had, and you'd get there, and they had to be inspected by the priests. And the priest would come along and determine whether or not your animal was fit to be sacrificed. Because, again, this was to be a perfect offering. And inevitably, by this point in Jesus' time, inevitably, they discovered that no matter what animal you brought, there was always a problem with it. But fear not. Don't dismay. Because guess what? We have a whole flock 
of sheep and goats that have already been inspected and approved. And for the right price, you can go ahead and buy one of these animals. And so you were a poor person going up to Jerusalem. You had to pay the temple tax. They're already fleecing you because of the exchange rate. You come up there with the best animal that you had. You traveled a great distance. You're offering this animal, and lo and behold, that animal is not approved. So you can't make the sacrifice. You've come all this way. You have to buy one of their animals, and guess what? Much higher than the normal rate. So Jesus gets up there to Jerusalem with his disciples, ready to celebrate the Passover, and he goes into the temple, this holiest of all places, where God is supposed to dwell symbolically with his people, and he sees all of this taking place. It wasn't just the buying and selling of the animals. It was this kind of buying and selling that outraged Jesus. And when I say outraged, I mean it made him angry. We don't often think of Jesus getting angry, but he does, and he did. One version says he made a whip of cords and drove the money changers out, and he overturned their table. Now, what are we supposed to take away from this? What, what are we supposed to learn from this? That Jesus made this kind of dramatic action. Well, at the very least, we are supposed to take away from this the fact that God takes worship seriously. God takes worship seriously. What we do on Sunday, now we have Bible studies, classes, programs, fellowship dinners, we have a whole host of things in the life of this congregation, all of which are designed to help us grow in our knowledge and love of the Lord. But the most important thing we do as believing people is we worship. Because worship, by definition, is to apply worth or value to someone or something. It means that the focus is on who? The focus is on God. This is one of the reasons why I love our liturgy, the Anglican liturgy. You know, you go into some churches, and I'm not saying that this is necessarily bad, but you go into some churches, and the first thing that the minister said is what? Good morning. How are you all this morning? It's great to see you here today. And the focus is on who? It's on the congregation, isn't it? Do you ever notice that in our liturgy, the very first words out of the minister's mouth, right after we sung the opening hymn, and I'm very intentional about this, we stand up and we say, blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Or bless the Lord who forgives our sins. Or alleluia, Christ is risen, depending upon the church here. But where is the focus? The focus is immediately. Immediately your attention is brought to God because it's all about him. Worship is all about him. It's not about us. The story is told about one of the archbishops of Canterbury who was visiting Neshota House Theological Seminary out in Wisconsin. And he was sitting up front, and the dean came into the chapel service and stood up and said just what I said to you, good morning, which there's nothing wrong with that. I always say that uh, at the announcements. But those are the first words out of the dean's mouth. And the acolyte who's sitting next to the archbishop of Canterbury can hear him mutter, God first. God first, God first. If this story teaches us anything at all, it teaches us that God takes seriously worship. 
How many of you this past week watched at least a portion of the funeral of Queen Elizabeth II? How many of you felt that that was a very moving, powerful tribute? How many of you thought, ah, over the top? Not a single person. Isn't that interesting? We were all deeply moved by that. And you know, one of the things that so impressed us was the fact that everything was done perfectly. Did you notice that? I mean, it was flawless. I mean, it was done with such precision, such care. I mean, it was magnificent. Every single aspect of it. They were out, I'm sure many of you know this, preparing for this every night at midnight. They're out there doing dry runs of these processions and so forth to be sure that they get it right. I mean, the thing that had me a nervous wreck the whole way through it was they're dragging that case on through the streets and the crown and the scepter and the orb are on top and I'm waiting, what if they hit the pothole? <laughs> I'm just waiting for those things to fall off or roll down the street. It never happened, did it? It was absolutely perfect. Such care was taken because this was a tribute to what? Earthly majesty. An earthly monarch. But you know, there's an old proverb that says, at the end of the game, the king and the pawn go back in the same box. And the reality is, Elizabeth II was formed of the dust, and unto dust she has returned. And she knew that. But if we take such precision, such care, in doing honor to an earthly monarch, what kind of care should we take in preparing ourselves to come into the presence of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the Sovereign Lord of glory and majesty, the Creator and Sustainer of all? You know, so often we come into worship rather carelessly, don't we? Would you do that if you were invited to meet Queen Elizabeth? Most of us would make sure we got out and got a new suit, got a new dress. We want to make sure that we understand who she is and how we're supposed to address her and all of that sort of thing. And you know you're not supposed to touch her. We would take great care. Do we take that kind of care when we come into the presence of God? That's the question. Somebody asked me a few years ago, when they were doing the flowers for Easter, they said, do you think it will be over the top? I said, it is Easter. You cannot go over the top. Whatever you saw this past week in London is a pale comparison to what we are going to see in glory. And we are to do everything in our power to make sure that we worship the Lord in this way. Now, we may not be able, we may not have the resources to honor God in the same way that they were able to honor the monarch. But what God is interested in is worship that is sincere, not just pomp and ceremony. Although if we can offer that, we should offer that. The best that we have, the cream of our hearts, as the hymn says. But whatever we offer... Whether it's a grand cathedral or a mud hut, it ought to be the best that we have to give, and it ought to be sincere. That was one of the complaints that God had about his people throughout history. 
in Isaiah, he said, the problem with this people is that they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Pure worship is especially important to God. How we worship reflects who we worship. And unfortunately, that was the problem here in Jerusalem. And unfortunately, it's the problem for too many people today. Our churches look more like the world than they do look like the sacred place where the King of Glory dwells. That's in a church. Looks very much like the world, doesn't it? And so many churches are like that. That's one of the reasons why I think architecture matters, folks. What we build matters. I think I pointed this out to you at one point. Um, we were at a diocesan convention. I'm not going to tell you where. But we were at a diocesan convention, and the building that we were going into was sort of a nondescript building. They had a traditional church. They built a much bigger church to accommodate the congregation, which was growing, which was wonderful. But it was sort of an, a multi-purpose room where you had an altar up front, and you had chairs like this, and it was, you know, it was, it was a fine space, but they used it for any number of things. You know, the youth group would use it for one thing, and, you know, they'd have dinners for other things, and everything could be moved around. The furniture was all movable. And I remember we're going in for the service, and we walked through some glass doors that are over here, and I had coffee in my hand, and I'm going in, and I sit down there in the front row, and I spill my coffee on the floor, and I'm like, oh, and I'm wiping it all up. And I'm not even thinking about the fact that I'm sitting right in front of the altar. It just didn't strike me that way. What was interesting is two years later, I had to host the convention at St. Helena's. And if you've been to Beaufort, you know that it is a 19th century, 18th century building, really, that was expanded in the 19th century. It's a very traditional building. And I noticed that we provided coffee and drinks for everybody. But I noticed something. I didn't even have to announce it. I noticed that as people went up the stairs to the church, they had their coffee, and they thought, I can't take this in here. And they set it down outside. And I also noticed that when they came in, it wasn't this dull roar inside. There were hushed tones. There was just something about going into that space that said, holy. I think that's the glory of the building that we have. Now, sometimes you can't afford to build a building like that. But those who did build this building were trying to convey a message to us. That everything was designed to lift us up above ourselves, to see the glory, the majesty of God Almighty. Let me tell you something. We are privileged to have the building that we have. We are blessed because it conveys a message. And that's what we are to do. We are to... Glorify God. We are to do it sincerely. We are to do it the best we can, and we are not to be like the world. Something else that this story reminds us of, and that is this. It's his party. This is about God. Worship on Sunday. Oftentimes people will come in and say, well, how was church? Well, i got to be honest with you. The minister was really a little long-winded today. How many of you think that? Do not raise your hand. Well, you can raise your hand today. I'm not in the pulpit. But at any rate, 
Or you say, oh, you know, I couldn't follow him no matter what. And you come away and you say, I don't even know why I was there. If you ever come out of church and that's what you say, you have missed the whole point of church. Because it's not about you. Now, hopefully, you'll derive a benefit. Hopefully, the minister will have something beneficial or worthy of saying. But worship is about God. It's about Him. It's His party. We're there for His glory. Oftentimes, people think that, that worship is that place where you've got these guys up front, and, 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 and women as well, but they're up front and they're doing what? They're performing. And we're there, and we hope that we're entertained, and we hope that we're blessed. But I'm here to tell you this morning, we're not the performers. And you're not the audience. Who is the audience? God is the audience. And every single one of us is there, what? For His glory, for His honor, for His entertainment, and for His joy. That's why it's called liturgy. Do you know what the word liturgy means? Anybody know what the word liturgy means? Thank you. The, the deacon-to-be understands what that word is. The word liturgy, you know, we're a liturgical church, so write this down. So anybody ask, well, what does liturgy mean? Liturgy means the work of the people. We're a liturgical church because the people participate in worship. Every single one of us has a role to play. Because God is the audience. So if this story teaches us anything at all, it teaches us that it is his part. Now, as I said, this was a dramatic act, and it caught the Jewish religious leaders by surprise. And they wanted to know, by whose authority? By whose authority do you presume to do this sort of thing? And every time I hear that expression, by whose authority, it reminds me of Ethan Allen at the Battle of Fort Ticonderoga in 1775. You know, there's going to be a history lesson in here somewhere. Ethan Allen uh, was sort of a rough and tumble kind of guy. And he was in charge of what were known as the Green Mountain Boys. They were a militia unit. They were over the overall, they were under the overall command of a very interesting and capable commander whose name has come down to us as a byword. Um, they were under the command of a man by the name of Ethan Allen. And they attacked Fort Ticonderoga and Ethan Allen was a was ordered by Benedict Arnold. Excuse me, Benedict Arnold was the fellow. They were under the command of Benedict Arnold. Benedict Arnold gives them the job of being the assaulting force. So Ethan Allen comes up with this plan. They assault the fort at night. They creep up, overcome the guards. And before the alarm is raised, Ethan Allen and about 20 men are making their way across the parade ground. They get up to the officer's quarters They've taken out all the guards by this point, and he's banging on the door of the commander's quarters. The commander was a man by the name of William Delaplace. And he's banging on the door, and William Delaplace comes and opens the door. He's got a candle in his hand, and he's in his all together, let's say. And, you know, he's a British officer. He's been rudely awakened in the middle of the night. There's this man standing in front of him uh, with an armed mob, and the first question he asks is, by whose authority do you do this? And Ethan Allen roared back, wonderful comments. He said, by whose authority? 
By whose authority? I'll tell you by whose authority. By the authority of the great God Jehovah and the Continental Congress. <laughs> and Fort Ticonderoga was surrendered. It became a real shot in the arm for the struggling colonists. Well, that was the question that was put to Jesus. By whose authority do you presume to do this? To come into the temple of all places and to drive out the money changers and overturn the tables. Who do you think you are? Well, you notice Jesus was reluctant to give up his identity initially. But for those who were present, it was a clear sign of who he was. This was his house. This was his father's house. And it was by the authority of the great God, Jehovah, that he did these things. And as we will see, it was by the authority of his resurrection. Ultimately, in the end, it would be by his resurrection. They said, by whose authority? And Jesus responded, I'll tell you by whose authority. If you destroy this temple in three days, I will rebuild it. They thought he was talking about the building itself. We all know that he was talking about his body. John makes that very clear. He says, if you want to know by whose authority is the authority of God Almighty who will raise me from the dead and announce me to the world as the King of glory. Now you'll notice that the story ends on a somewhat somber note. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name because Jesus stayed there and he performed a great many acts and many people believed in his name. But I find it very interesting, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. Why? Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about him, for he himself knew what was in man. One translation puts this way, he entrusted himself to no man because he knew what was in the heart of man. Well, let me ask you this question this morning. What's in your heart? How many of you are getting ready to go into church in just a moment? You, some of you have already been to the early service. How many of you are getting ready to go into the later service? Well, here's the question. What's in your heart? When you head into church this morning, when you head into that building, do you realize that you're going into the presence of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords? Are you prepared to give everything that you have, to give as much precision and care to your act of worship today as those thousands did in that act of homage to Queen Elizabeth II. Are you willing to do that? Because worship matters to God. It is not something we take carelessly. It's the most important thing we do. We are to come with care to prepare our hearts, prepare our souls to meet our King. May God grant us the grace to do it in a way that was better than the people of Jesus' day did it. Let us pray. Father, we sometimes take worship as just an act of rote memorization. We say the words without thinking about it. We go through the motions, we go through the actions without really contemplating what we are doing. Lord, you want us to worship you in spirit and in truth. Sunday is the most important day of the week. It is your day. It is the Lord's day. Holy and sacred unto you. Prepare our hearts and our minds 
Help us to have a sense of your majesty, your glory, your greatness. Help us to have a sense of our own smallness. And as we come, help us to honor you not only with our lips, but with our lives, to give you the cream of our hearts, to give the very best that we have, that Jesus Christ might be lifted up and that he might draw all men to himself. For it's in his name and for his sake that we pray. Amen. All right, thank you very much.